In a ruling last week in a British Columbia appeals court, three Eritrean refugees pushed back against Canadian mining company Nevson and convinced the court to hear their claims that Nevson has been using conscript labour at its mine in Bisha, Eritrea. For years, it's been virtually impossible to get a Canadian court to hear claims of human rights violations committed by Canadian corporations overseas. So needless to say, this is a very significant precedent. On the phone now is Daniel Chagay. He's an activist originally from Eritrea, now in Vancouver. Daniel, welcome back to Amandla. Hi, thanks for having me. So this case started back in 2014. Can you start just by telling us what the plaintiffs are claiming? So, yeah, as you said, 2014, there are three plaintiffs who uh, worked in this mine in the Bisha region of Eritrea. Um, it's a mine that is uh, 60% of it is owned by a Vancouver-based company, Nevson Resources, and the other 40% is um, a subcontractor in Eritrea. And they're claiming that uh, they essentially were slave laborers. They were enslaved uh, and working uh, in that mining site uh, amongst another few hundred people. Um, basically, Eritrea has uh, a form of military conscription that really operates as a slave labor system. Uh, so, yeah, they're claiming that uh, they were enslaved and uh, they worked for next to nothing in terrible conditions, uh, experienced torture and whatnot uh, in this site. Um, so... They Well, they certainly have a lot to back them up. Last year, uh, the United Nations conducted an inquiry into human rights in Eritrea and concluded that Eritrea is what it referred to as the lifelong military service is tantamount to modern day slavery involving up to 400,000 Eritreans. Um, now, conscription is a common practice in several parts of the world, but usually this is two or three years. The, here we're talking about a system that is uh, potentially lifelong. So can you kind of fill in some details for us about uh, about the system in Eritrea? Yeah. So as you said, uh, conscription is common in uh, many parts of the world. Uh, but by international law, it's actually supposed to only last as long as, uh, I believe it's 18 months. Uh, so a year and a half, uh, and it's uh, if it if it's prolonged, if it's any longer than that, it has to be because there's an actual emergency, mm -hmm. right? There's an actual threat uh, to the nation. Um, but in Eritrea, uh, it's much longer than 18 months. Uh, there are reports of people being in, indefinitely uh, conscripted uh, uh, in in the military for over 10 years, right? Like 10, 15, sometimes even 20 years is is a common common uh, occurrence. Uh, and uh, the reality is there is no imminent threat to Eritrea. Uh, the state uh, kind of makes this claim that uh, um, Ethiopia is a threat and uh, that's, uh, there's a long-standing history there and it's not uh, totally divorced from reality, but it's, uh, it's pretty much a pretext for prolonging uh, the conscription of these people. But, how, so, do, but uh, how do army conscripts end up working in a mine? Yeah, so that's the thing. So on top of that, um, they're not even getting the military training the state claims. Right? Uh, people are conscripted into the military, but then they end up working in various state-run projects. So they could be in the civil service, uh, they could be working in a mine, uh, in construction. There are even reports of 
some members of the national soccer team, the Eritrea's national soccer team, are basically military conscripts. Mm-hmm. Right? Are they so paid? They uh, they are paid, uh, but they are paid very, very, very little. These are uh, poverty wages, and um, you know it's it's uh, it's uh, something unlivable. Uh, the housing conditions are terrible. As I said, torture is very common. Um, usually, people are separated from their families uh, throughout the year. They probably see their families uh, once or twice a year. Uh, and uh, the conscription program is even extended beyond its original practice. Originally, it was you finish high school and then you're conscripted into the military. Now they're actually even getting some people before they finish high school. Um, and there's a couple complicated reasons for that, but uh, one, one big one is that uh, there's a refugee crisis. People are fleeing the country in droves uh, because they're trying to avoid military conscription, mm-hmm. and a lot of people flee before they finish high school. So they're nabbing them before they can leave the country. Is there a mechanism to withdraw oneself from conscription after a certain period of time? No. Um, one uh, one thing that can you know preclude someone getting conscripted in the first place would be um, women who are pregnant. So it's actually a common practice for for women to to try to get married off before mm-hmm. they can be conscripted. But uh, once you're in, uh, you can't get out unless you flee. Is women's labor used in different ways from men's labor? Is there any kind of uh, gender division that's used within this conscription system? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, my understanding is that uh, there'll be less physically demanding labor, but uh, it's uh, they're pretty uh, non-discriminatory in their exploitation of laborers, mm-hmm. unfortunately. <laughs> So given everything that you've described here, is there um, any way that Nevsun in its operations could possibly have been unaware that conscript labor was being used on their minds, in your opinion? Uh, that's one thing they've claimed. Uh, you know, they've claimed a number of things to try to get out of accountability on this. Uh, but yeah, one of, the, one of the things they've claimed is that they didn't know and they couldn't have known. Uh, and even that they uh, took measures to find out and they were assured uh, they weren't employing slave laborers. Um, but it's a pretty common understanding that uh, to operate any kind of business uh, in Eritrea, any large-scale project in Eritrea, is to use slave labor. That is just su- such an endemic practice in Eritrea. Um, so, you know, you've seen the United Nations reports, the Amnesty International reports, the Human Rights Watch approach. It's incredibly widespread. Every every major industry employs slave laborers. So they, they must have known that they were uh, that they were employing slave laborers as well, or that they could be. Right. And I mean, I guess the fact that they partnered 40, but they own 60 percent of it, but the other 40 percent is controlled by the Eritrean state. Isn't that the case? Yeah, that's the case. And yeah, they should know that the Eritrean state um, openly uh, employs slave laborers. I mean, they don't call them slave laborers. They, they'll say they're military conscripts. They'll say this is a form of state socialism. Uh, you know, this is a, a patriotic endeavor that uh, it's important for people to, to um, uh, invest in their, their nation, build their nation up. Um, but uh, yeah, they are... It's uh, they don't even the state does not even deny that uh, you know we agree on the facts 
we all agree that these workers are in these projects, that they're experiencing torture, terrible conditions, uh, in, uh, incredibly poorly paid. We agree on that. The only difference is they don't call that slave labor. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Nevson should have known. If, uh, they're, if 40% of their mine uh, is owned by the state, they should know that they are using slave labor. This whole court case is obviously an incredibly critical step forward in holding Canadian uh, mining companies accountable for their actions overseas. Um, But when it comes to Canada's relationship with Eritrea or Canada's responsibility to address this issue, are the courts enough, do you think? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm actually still unclear about uh, what the goal of um, the lawyers are in this case. Like, what what do they want? Do they just want financial compensation? Because uh, if that's the case, uh, that may not be enough. You know, these mining companies are uh, making incredible profits, and they might just, you know, see a, um, a financial loss as, you know, one, one loss, uh, a price of business, right? But they're still turning a profit. Maybe a, a slightly smaller profit, but they're still making a profit. Um, so I'm concerned about that. Uh, I don't know if um, this will be enough. You know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty huge problem. We've got, um, I, I believe, it's over half. Over half of the world's mining companies are based in Canada, and something like 1,200 exploration firms are in Vancouver alone, mm-hmm. uh, where I am. Uh, so this is a huge issue, and while this is, I hope this is a precedent, and this is a sign that um, you know multinational ca- uh, companies can be uh, potentially accountable for for things they do overseas. Um, I do, I yeah, I'm I'm concerned about the limitations of of the courts. Yeah, it's a tricky thing, eh, when ultimately this is really a political issue, and to try to play that out in the arena of the courts, it's. Uh, it's potentially a huge step, as I said, but if it stays within that arena, you know, the track record is limited in terms of that actually affecting any kind of true political change, whether it's here in Canada in terms of corporate structures and accountability or in the countries where these human rights violations are being committed. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, legal mechanisms are often, um, unfortunately, still consistent with you know, massive exploitation and neo-colonialism. Um, I I don't know what the shift looks like, but yes, I I am worried that it's, it won't be enough. Um, but I mean, of course, that depends on exactly what the lawyers are looking for. I I actually don't know um, <clears throat> what they're hoping to achieve, and uh, if that's even likely. I mean, the fact that this is going to court is great, uh, but uh, we don't know what the plaintiffs are are going to get. Assuming that the plaintiffs do, you know, that there that there's ultimately a victory here, um, it certainly raises the profile of what's going on in Eritrea right now. Um, do you think there's, you've been a very outspoken about uh, the hypocrisy in Canadian um, refugee policy and the extreme difficulty for Eritreans to find asylum in Canada, given what everybody can agree are really extreme conditions there. So do you think there's any hope that uh, just by virtue of raising the profile of the story that, you know, that could perhaps have a positive impact on Canadian refugee policy towards Eritreans? I hope. Um, 
Yeah. So, you know, one thing we've seen is uh, in Europe, it's more explicit, but in Canada, it's, uh, it's here as well. Uh, there's this distinction between refugees and economic migrants. Right? So refugees are people who are fleeing uh, war, right? So Syrians, uh, for one, uh, and economic migrants are like most other people, especially Africans, right? They're, they're leaving poverty. Um, and often economic migrants are framed as being uh, less deserving of solidarity, of support, of asylum. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing that uh, being played out here in Canada. I mean, we saw that uh, Syrian refugees were uh, very focused on, right? And, and that was, that's good. Uh, actually, there should be a lot more focus on uh, Syrian refugees and more support for Syrian refugees. But there was, there was uh, no proportional, there was little proportional support for African refugees. Mm-hmm. And it's because they were thought of as just like, oh, they're just, you know, fleeing some poverty. It's not that bad. You know, uh, it's not as it's not as terrible as, as you know, having bombs exploding near you. Mm-hmm. But the, the reality is that African refugees know the risks of, uh, you know, death uh, during transit uh, to get to the Mediterranean Sea, you know, dying in the Sahara Desert, being uh, uh, held ransom by traffickers, um, uh, being murdered by traffickers if uh, they can't uh, pay up. Uh, and drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. They know all those risks, and they take them anyway. Yeah. To me, that, that's a sign that uh, they're leaving something uh, very harrowing, right? yeah. something that we should be in solidarity for or with. Well, we know that so, an astounding 3% of Eritreans have left, have fled the country, and are looking for safe haven elsewhere. Are they getting it anywhere? Is anybody uh, showing them solidarity? Yeah, I mean... You know, they, it's not like the, the asylum rates are zero, uh, especially in, particularly in Europe. Uh, but they're, they're, they're experiencing, just, just recently, uh, Israel uh, is advancing some of its policies of expelling um, migrants, um, African refugees mainly. And these are disproportionately Eritreans. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of Eritreans go to Israel. Uh, and they're sending them back to, like, they're sending them to, like, uh, various, States in Central Africa, where they have no connections and they'll they'll have no money, and then they just end up uh, trying to tri- take the trip again, whether it's back to Israel or or across the Mediterranean. So, you know, there's uh, no, they're not. I uh, in a in a broad sense, no, they're absolutely not getting the support they need. That they're they're just being uh, closed off and exploited ever more, and you know they're being victimized by traffickers and you know we're seeing the uh, uh, the slave trade reemerge in Libya mm-hmm. or that's kind of the central site of it uh, and it's all because of these closed borders yeah to your knowledge are there any um, organized initiatives here in Canada to try to open our door wider and and allow Eritreans to come into the country um the, the 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 biggest organization that I've been uh, um, very impressed with, and you know, I've seen them talk about some of the same same things I'm I'm talking about about you know the hierarchy of support for refugees and how Canada needs to extend its uh, solidarity to African refugees is uh, the Canadian Council for Refugees. Uh, I think they're they're doing a great job of have done a great job of 
making that same point. Um, yeah, so that, that would be that'd be an organization I look into. Okay, so just on a final point for people who'd like to learn more about um, the conditions back in Eritrea, I mean, we talked about conscript labor, but we haven't talked about how there's no independent judiciary, the media, no independent media, um, really virtually no recourse whatsoever. Uh, How can people uh, learn more about what's going on in Eritrea and uh, specifically, I guess, the, the conscript system, but just in general? Yeah, there's some good independent sites that are not, uh, uh, like written and edited by uh, Eritreans in the diaspora, right? So they'll be somewhere in North America or in, or in Europe. Uh, one of them is awate.com. That's A-W-A-T-E dot com. Mm-hmm. The other is harnet.org. That's H-A-A-R-N-E-T dot org. Um, there are a couple other good ones, but yeah, those are those are two really great ones. And as I said, they are uh, created by the diaspora, so okay. they don't have the direct intimate knowledge, but uh, they like uh, they they have you know connections with people in Eritrea. They have they have their sources, and it's uh, well researched work, and it's it's important, and it's uh, um, it's really the last resort because yeah, as you said, there's no independent media in Eritrea. Okay, well, we'll post those uh, links on our blog. Daniel Chege, thank you so much for joining us here on Amanda. Thank you very much, Glenn. Bye-bye.